Okay, let's uh, continue. Okay, what's the lining of your main stem bronchus, please? What's the lining of your main stem bronchus, please? Ciliated columnar, pseudostratified columnar. So if you were a smoker, then what would be an example of a metaplasia? Squamous, that's right. If it underwent squamous, metaplasia. Okay, how about this one? Uh, let's say I had increased goblet cells in the main stem bronchus, which is seen in all smokers. Is that an example of hyperplasia or metaplasia? It's hyperplasia because you normally have goblet cells in the main stem bronchus, but also smokers have goblet cells in the terminal bronchioles. Is that an example of hyperplasia or metaplasia? Metaplasia because there aren't normally goblet cells in the terminal bronchiole. See, they, they could ask questions like this because this proves whether you know histology or not. If you have goblet cells in the stomach, would that be uh, normal or would that be abnormal? Abnormal, they should be present in the intestine. They should not be present in the small intestine. So that would be called glandular metaplasia. And that is a precursor for adenocarcinoma of the stomach. What's the most common cause of adenocarcinoma of the stomach? Helicobacter pylori. So because helicobacter pylori produces uh, uh, damage to the pylorus and antral mucosa, produces a chronic atrophic gastritis, with intestinal glandular metaplasia, that's the precursor lesion for adenocarcinoma. So what you're seeing here is that hyperplasia left unchecked could potentially produce cancer. For example, endometrial hyperplasia is the most common precursor lesion for endometrial adenocarcinoma, and that's usually due to unopposed estrogen. Okay? Exception is prostate hyperplasia does not progress into prostate cancer. Okay, but we can also see that metaplasia can go through a process uh, ending up as cancer. Let's take lung. Okay, uh, ciliated columnar epithelium becomes squamous, squamous metaplasia. And then you get what is called squamous dysplasia. We'll see a picture of that in a second. And then from dysplasia, uh, the, uh, the squamous epithelium can go into cancer, squamous carcinoma. So you can have that progression too. Okay. And the esophagus and the distal esophagus, it went from squamous to a glandular epithelium because squamous epithelium can't handle acid. So it needs, needs mucus-secreting epithelium as a, as a defense against the acid injury. Okay? But unfortunately, that glandular metaplasia can go on into an atypical metaplasia and go on into an adenocarcinoma of the distal esophagus. So some of these things are precancerous types of, of processes. Now, in parasitology, you'll know about the one in the bladder, right? There's only two, two parasites that actually produce cancer. One's Clonorchis sinensis producing cholangiocarcinoma. That's the Chinese liver fluke. And this one, which is in the bladder, this is schistosoma hematobium, okay? And so it causes the transitional epithelium to undergo squamous metaplasia. And from squamous metaplasia, squamous dysplasia. And from squamous dysplasia, squamous cancer. There you go. So it converted transitional epithelium to squamous, that's the metaplasia part, then that went under dysplasia and became a squamous cell carcinoma. There's lots of these different ones, and I got most of the, uh, those, uh, those progressions uh, down there for you that are important. This is dysplasia. Okay, dysmember is abnormal. Dysplasia is actually an, a, an atypical hyperplasia, actually. Okay. Now, they don't expect you to be pathologists, but I think anyone would know if this is squamous epithelium, it's distinctly abnormal. 
I mean, it's lacking order to it. We have nuclei that are big up near the surface. Man, it's the basal cell layer that does the dividing. Why should the cells at the top you know, be bigger than the ones that are the ones that are dividing? So you can see that it's lax orientation. I don't think it requires a pathologist to figure it out. This is abnormal, okay? And if they say this is a cervical biopsy in a woman that has a human papillomavirus infection, or they say this is a uh, mainstem bronchus biopsy, I mean, you should be able to tell that this is dysplastic. They're not going to say, you know, severe, moderate, mild. That's pathology. How many are you going to become pathologists? Not a whole lot of you. But you should be able to know that dysplasia is a precursor for cancer, be it glandular dysplasia or be it squamous dysplasia. It's a precursor for cancer. What's the precursor for squamous cell carcinoma of the skin, guys? It's right over here. I'll give you the last one that I heard about. It was very clever. A farmer that had a lesion on the back of his neck, which they said he scraped off, and then three months later, it grew back. Well, this is what grew back. So what's, what was it? What was the answer to that one? This is actinic keratosis, another name, solar keratosis, and it's a, it's a precursor for squamous cell carcinoma in the skin. Not basal cell, squamous cell. See, I think you can see that there's some abnormal squamous epithelium here, and so this is actinic keratosis, another name, solar. This is UVB light, damaged skin. It was clever, you know, scraped it off, and then it grew back. Farmer, sun exposure, they always use farmers for this thing. Okay. Maybe the next one will be on his ear. Okay, and he scraped it off and it grew back. You know, they could do anything. Maybe it was on the face and he scraped it off and it grew back. And you know, it's a farmer who has exposure to sun. It's the same thing. The answer is it's actinic keratosis or solar keratosis. What's its significance? The precursor for squamous cancer. Maybe it was on the forearm. I mean, anywhere they want, they could put this. They could, they could, they could, they can, they can take this thing and probably find 50 areas in sun-exposed areas. They ask this question. Okay, <laughs> still the same answer. Scraped it off, it came back in the sun-exposed area. Duh! I think it has something to do with sun exposure. In this case, not basal cell. Actinic keratosis doesn't predispose to a basal cell, squamous cell. Basal cells are more common than squamous cells. Okay, inflammation is the next section. Now, you've had inflammation, or at least you should have. I have, to, I have to look at what you got on immunology. In fact, I'll do that over lunch. Part of innate, innate uh, defenses involves when we get an infection, what happens and stuff like that. So this should be reasonably familiar. So I'm going to hit it more from the... Uh, pathology point of view and the stuff on inflammation at CS on boards. Okay? <clears throat> That's the bee sting. This exact picture was on boards. And I think probably uh, this little thing here was probably labeled A and then this over here was labeled B. And maybe something way out on the edge was labeled C. That's about as far as you can go. Remember they can go anywhere from three A, B, C to I forget what they can go up to. Six or seven choices on uh, part one. Part two you can get more than one answer. They might do select two, select four, and they, on part two they, they do um, matching. Part one usually doesn't have matching. Sometimes they change. I don't know whether they're going to be doing that or not. So don't be surprised if you see four choices and sometimes sometimes three choices or sometimes six or seven choices uh, for a question. But uh, only the only single select. Okay. Now, remember there's four of this Latin terms applied to acute inflammation. 
So let's go through these things. We see redness here. That's rubor. Okay, now who is the king of the vasodilators of the chemical mediators in acute inflammation, guys? Histamine. Now what is the vasodilating? Arterioles. All right. So histamine is responsible for the redness of acute inflammation. This happens to be due to a bee sting. Okay. And what is it, what is it working on? It's working on arterioles. Okay, if we felt this, it'd be hot. That's calor. What's that do to? Histamine again. Because when you vasodilate, it's all in the notes. Well, everything is there. Right? And in fact, I can almost see it in my notes there. Boom, people copying all this down. It's all there. Okay? Uh, you vasodilate, that gives off heat. That's why an endotoxic shock, a septic shock, it, you get warm skin as opposed to cold skin. It's because you're vasodilating the arterioles. Okay? So again, histamine. Histamine is related to that. Two. All right? That's a, the tumor of acute inflammation because it's a raised structure. What's that due to? Increased vessel permeability. Well, who increases vessel permeability in acute inflammation? Histamine. What vessel? Don't say arterial. Venial. That's right. So increased vessel permeability is in the venials. Think about it, guys. Is an arterial thicker than a venial? Yes or no? How are you going to get an exudate through an arterial? Well, it's got smooth muscle in it, a couple layers of that, an internal elastic line. Forget it. Okay? But a venial is very, very thin. It's just basically an uh, endothelial cell, basement membrane. What we've got to do is drill a hole through the basement membrane, you're out. So increased vessel permeability doesn't occur at the arterial level. It occurs at the venial level. And um, histamine contracts the endothelial cells and leaves that basement membrane bare. And so you get increased vessel permeability, producing an exudate, swelling of tissue. That's the tumor of acute inflammation. Now, this probably hurt. That's dolor. Histamine doesn't have anything to do with this. This is bradykinin. Remember, bradykinin is part of the kininogen system, which is between Hageman's factor 12 and 11. So when you activate the... Um, the uh, intrinsic pathway, you automatically activate the kininogen system. Because the moment you activate 12, Hageman's factor, that activates not only 11, but activates the kininogen system, and the end product of that is bradykinin. Who degrades bradykinin? Angiotensin-converting enzyme. I just made a correlation for you. Isn't it true that you get angioedema? as one complication of an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor. Yes or no? Okay, so if you inhibit angiotensin-converting enzyme, what else are you inhibiting? The metabolism of bradykinin, which increases vessel permeability, producing the angioedema, the swelling of tissue. How it produces cough, I'm not exactly sure, but it also can produce cough. That's how they're asking farm questions lately. They'll give you some scenario and some side effect, and they'll say what drug is the patient on. That's how they've been doing it lately. Okay. All right. So, um, you know they're interested in this because I know they had this picture, and I know they had it labeled, and you had to, to, to tell uh, all these. So, bradykinin and PGE2 are the two things producing pain. So, that's the only one of the four uh, Latin terms for acute inflammation that's not due to histamine is the pain. Okay. Now, just very quickly going through the different things that happen in acute inflammation uh, is that the neutrophils uh, in the small vessels will begin uh, getting sticky because of adhesion molecule synthesis. 
Okay, so when the endothelial cells begin synthesizing adhesion molecules, and eventually the neutrophils will stick to the endothelial cells. That's called pavementing. Some people call it margination. And then they will go and look for bare basement membrane on those venules. And with what type of collagenase do you think they have? Type 4 collagenase, because what's the collagen? Type 4. So uh, neutrophils have type 4 collagenase, and they drill a hole through it. What else, what else has type 4 collagenase in it? Cancer cells. How do you think that they get through uh, and metastasize? They have to stick to endothelial cells, so they have to have adhesion molecules, usually against laminin in the basement membrane. They also, in order to get through the basement membrane, they have to have collagenase to get through. Okay? So cancer cells pretty much are like a neutrophil in the way it can get into tissue. A cancer cell has the same things for getting into tissue to invade tissue. Okay, so when they get out, out of the uh, small vessels, usually the venules, uh, they uh, emigrate. Okay, now they have to know what direction to go. Okay, so obviously all neutrophils have to be female in origin because they're the only ones that know directions. Okay, men, as you know, get lost and don't want to get direction. They'd rather be lost than stop and ask directions. You all know that. Okay. So, uh, it's directed chemotaxis. Okay. Now, could you name a couple of things that are involved in telling them where to go? C5A, LTB4 are chemotactic agents. In fact, they're also involved in making adhesion molecules on neutrophils. So it's kind of interesting that those things that make adhesion molecules also give directions to C5A and LTB4. Okay? So that's the normal sequence of things in acute inflammation. Now, we know that uh, if we have an infection, let's say Staph aureus that's producing acute inflammation, we know that the bacteria uh, are being prepared before they're getting uh, destroyed. And what's that process called, please? Opsonization. Could you please name two opsonizers? IgG and C3B. Okay. Okay, who can name a disease, sex-linked recessive child, where you're missing all immunoglobulins, including IgG? Wouldn't say gamma globulinemia. And so what do you think the most common cause of death then, then is? Infection. Because you can't opsonize things. So you may not have put that together. You may have known that it produces hypogammaglobulinemia, but you're not putting together what's the mechanism of the infection. The mechanism of the infection is they have no IgG to opsonize bacteria. Therefore, you can't phagocytose it. So you were three quarters there, but not all the way. And unfortunately, it's that last quarter they ask on boards. Why? Not what, why. That's how you think. That's how you study. Why, 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 why. Okay? Mechanisms. If you study everything that you have, have had all the way through and all the other things. Why, why, why. Mechanisms of the drugs. You know, all mechanisms, mechanisms, mechanisms. You annihilate this test. Annihilate it. And not interested in your memorization abilities. What is going to be very little part of the test. Single-step reasoning, I don't think, exists on a, on a board examination. It's always two sets. It usually involves why. Not what, why. They assume you know the what. They want to know why. Very important. Okay, so they're opsonized by IgG and C3B, so which means then that neutrophils must have receptors for those. Okay? 
And so we know that it's a neutrophil for acute inflammation. And what is it for chronic inflammation? The macrophage monocyte. Remember, monocytes, when they get tired of becoming a monocyte, become macrophages. Okay? And if they're couch potatoes, they want to be fixed macrophages. Okay? If they want to move around as a macrophage, then they'll be wandering ones, like alveolar macrophages and stuff like that. Okay? But anyway, so they would have to have receptors for those obstinates, IgG and C3B. It makes sense, doesn't it? There's no memorization involved. That all makes sense. And then they're going to get phagocytosed. Okay? So this is a phagolysosome. And what will happen is when you phagocytosis bacteria, the lysosomes uh, will go down the microtubules and empty their enzymes into this. Okay? You learn about an interesting disease in biochemistry where because you can't phosphorylate mannose residues and the Golgi apparatus, then the enzymes cannot, there are no enzymes that are not marked with the phosphorus on them, and so the lysosomes are empty, and that's called eye cell disease. That's good. They love that one. They love that one. Okay. Now that involves that dolecol, glycosaminoglycan type of stuff. Uh, kind of interesting stuff. Gets a little bit hairy in there, but they ask it. And Hanson. Hanson's very good. You guys are really lucky to have her. She's really a good lecturer. Very clinically oriented biochemist. And so she's going to put some finishing touches on this stuff. And boy, you're really going to be ready. Ooh. And of course, you've got Paso, you know, doing his cardiovascular. He means sick. He wasn't sick. He couldn't have been sick. Paso's never sick. Paso's never sick. Tell him I said so. He wasn't sick. He just used some excuse. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Good guy. All right. And so, and so here's this bacteria, Staph aureus, in a, in a hot tub. Okay, surrounded by enzymes. And you learn in microbiology all different kinds of ways that they can get, you know, evade destruction. What's interesting, things like chlamydia can actually get out of a phagolysosome. That's interesting. I'd like to know how it does that, a Houdini. Okay, but sometimes they have mucus around them and all kinds of things. Okay, and you learn about the oxygen-dependent myeloperoxidase system, which is big-time boards, big-time, big-time, big-time boards. Okay, remember that oxygen, molecular oxygen, um, um, is converted by NADPH oxidase, which is in the cell membrane of neutrophils uh, and monocytes, but not macrophages. They lose that system. And notice there's a very important enzyme uh, cofactor, NADPH. Where is most NADPH synthesized? Common last board question. Pentose phosphate shunt. And what's the enzyme responsible for that? That particular part of the reaction, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase. That's converting glucose 6-phosphate into 6-phosphoglucanate. You're getting NADPH, and then you're getting a neutralizing factor for, for uh, free radicals. Name it. Glutathione. Okay. Make sure you know where we are. That's where the NADPH came from. And it's converting molecular oxygen into a free radical, superoxide. That's an unpaired electron in its outer orbit that gives off energy. That's called a respiratory burst, which can be measured by radiation detectors. But the one they like on exams is nitroblutetrazoleum, NBT dye test. What they do is get a little test tube. And they add in this dye that's colorless, called N, as in Nancy, B as in boy, T as in Tom. They stick it into this test tube. And if, and if uh, neutrophils and monocytes are working okay, they'll phagocytose it. They'll have a respiratory burst. 
and that free radical oxygen will cause the color, a change to occur in the dye and make it colored. You see a bluish color. And then they take some of the neutrophils out, they smear them on a slide, and they see if they see any color in the dye, and if they do, then they know that the respiratory burst is, is working. If they see that there isn't any color in the dye, that means they were not able, they did not have an, an, a respiratory burst system. And they know that they have chronic granulomatous disease of childhood. Okay. What happens to the free radical oxygen? It's converted by its uh, neutralizers, uh, superoxide dismutase, and peroxide. Woo! You know, that itself could kill bugs. But this is something better than peroxide. And that is, there's an enzyme called myeloperoxidase. You know those little red granules that you see in, in monocytes and little red granules that you see in neutrophils? You know those are lysosomes, right? That's what the little red, what you call the xerophilic granules, those are lysosomes. You can see them in a peripheral blood. Okay? Myeloperoxidase is one of many enzymes in there. And it's going to catalyze the reaction, guys. It's going to combine peroxide together with chloride to form bleach. Ooh. Does bleach kill bugs? Big time. It'll kill you too if you drink it. Okay? It'll kill you too. It'll kill anything. Who's bleach? Whoa. So you can see why this is the most potent, potent bactericidal mechanism for killing things. The oxygen dependent myeloperoxidase system. And what two cells have it? Neutrophils and monocytes. How about macrophages? No. They lose that system once they become a macrophage. They get punished. You don't get your oxygen dependent. What are you going to leave me with? Lysosomes. <laughs> you go out with a huff. I want to become a couch potato. Go ahead. Become a fixed macrophage if you want. By the way, what's the, uh, what's the macrophage of the central nervous system? Microglial cells. So what's the reservoir cell for CNS8? The microglial cell. What's the reservoir cell in outside the CNS? The dendritic cell, which is a macrophage, and where is that located? In the lymph nodes. That should not be... <gasps> okay? Those are in your high-yield stuff under microbiology and immunology. Okay. Can you see something here? How about this one? If I have glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, then why is it that infection is the most common thing that precipitates hemolysis? You answer the question. The answer is right up there. You have no NADPH, which means you have no functioning oxygen-dependent myeloperoxidase system, which means you would be susceptible to infection, which would set off the hemolysis of the red blood cells. Correlation right there. Ooh, this is pretty cool. Yes, it is. All right, so let's talk about some diseases so that we can get some. We have chronic granulomatous disease of childhood, which is sex-linked recessive. So what does that mean? Who gives it to the boy? Mommy, who's an asymptomatic carrier. Okay, remember, both female carriers, both, uh, both females... Okay, maybe you have 50 of the females. All of the females of a male with a disease, okay, are, are asymptomatic carriers. And they transmit the disease to 50% of their sons. Okay, I used to teach a genetics part, but I have no more time to do that. But I put all my genetics notes and my high yields 
because they really were high yield, big time. It looked like he had pretty good genetics in there. I looked at that, that part. It looked good. looked good. Okay, so in chronic granulomatous disease of childhood, they're missing an enzyme, NADPH oxidase. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do they have, what's the NBT type dye test show? It's abnormal. It doesn't show uh, color of the dye. So what's, what's the, what are they missing? The respiratory burst. So do they have superoxide? No. Do they have peroxide? No. Do they have myeloperoxidase? Yes. Do they have chloride? Yes. So, if some bacteria that they phagocytose in a neutrophil or monocyte could make peroxide and, put, and, and add that to the inside that phagolysosome, would that be all that this kid would need to be able to kill the bacteria? Yes. We have myeloperoxidase. We have chloride. What these kids are missing is peroxide because they have no NADPH oxidase. All living organisms make peroxide. That includes all bacteria. But not all bacteria contain catalase, which is an enzyme that you already know breaks down peroxide. And so we run into that microbiology question that's always asked in relationship to chronic granulomatous disease of childhood. What can they kill? What can't they kill? They can't kill staph, but they can kill strep. And the reason for that is, is staphylococcus is not only coagulase positive, it's catalase positive. So if this was staph aureus here, when it makes its peroxide, and it will, it also will release catalase and neutralize it and so the kid can't kill the staph. And it will kill the kid. But if this was a streptococcus, which is catalase negative, then when it makes its peroxide, as any normal bacteria would, it doesn't have catalase, and so it's adding what this kid really needed to make bleach, and so this kid can kill strep. So kids with chronic granulomatous disease of childhood can kill strep, but can't kill staph, and it all has to do with which one of the bacteria are catalase positive, staph, which one's negative, strep. Classic board integration, Tanya. Classic. Now, next question is, let's keep this here. Myeloperoxidase deficiency has been added over the last year into the boards. Do they have a respiratory burst? Think before you answer. Of course they do, because they have NADPH oxidase. Okay, do they have peroxide? Yes. Do they have superoxide free radicals? Yes. Do they have chloride? Yes. Do they have myeloperoxidase? No. <laughs> okay. And so they have a respiratory burst, a, a normal NBT dye test, but they can't kill the bacteria. Why? Because they can't make bleach. Okay. So what would we call this type of defect? We have obstinization defects. That, can, that would be things like brutus-agammoglobulinemia, missing IgG. There are certain C3 deficiencies also. That'd be an obstinization defect. We have certain defects that are chemotactic, where, where the cells don't respond to chemotaxis. Then we have cells, then we have defects in microbiocidal defects. That means ability to kill bacteria. Chronic granulomatous disease of childhood and myeloperoxidase deficiency are both microbiocidal defects. They can't kill bacteria. 
but for different reasons. And uh, myeloperoxidase deficiency is because they can't make bleach because uh, they're missing the enzyme, but they do have a respiratory burst. Whereas in chronic granulomatous disease, they can't make bleach either, but they have an absent respiratory burst. So that's the main difference between the two. Plus, myeloproxidase deficiency is not sex-linked recessive. It's autosomal recessive. The next board question is the kid whose umbilical cord doesn't fall off when it should. And then it's removed surgically, and they say that histologically it doesn't show uh, neutrophils uh, within the tissue or neutrophils lining the uh, small vessels. So that's an adhesion molecule defect. Now they can sometimes just say adhesion molecule defect, sometimes they say a beta-2 uh, integrin defect, uh, sometimes they put that because integrins are adhesion molecules. But whatever it is, the umbilical cord needs to have an inflammatory reaction involving neutrophils, so they have to stick in order to get out. Okay, so they, they can't stick, they can't get out, then you can't get rid of your umbilical cord. That's a classic adhesion molecule defect. All three of these things have been on exams, big time. Must know. Okay, now you should be familiar with all of these already, but just as a little review, uh, what's the king of the chemical mediators of acute inflammation? Histamine. All right. What does it do to arterioles? Vasodilates them. What does it do to venules? Causes increased vessel permeability. Good. Serotonin, what amino acid uh, makes it this? Tryptophan, very good. Is serotonin a neurotransmitter? Yes, some of you are deficient in it right now. So what do you have? Depression. <laughs> Those of you that look like norepinephrine, <laughs> You have division in both of those suckers. Okay. Since I'm manic depressive, I got, you know, I just got old piles of stuff. Okay. Anaphylotoxins, name me. C3A, C5A. Big deal. That's, that is memorization. What role do they play? The anaphylotoxins means what? That they stimulate mast cells to release what? Histamine which causes vasodilatation and increased vessel permeability. Do you think they may even play a role in shock? I think so. Because if you activate the complement system, those two suckers are going to be there. You're going to have those dudes around. Okay. Bradykinin we talked about. C3B we mentioned. Prostaglandins, most of them increase vessel permeability and dilate. Leukotrains. Remember, those are, uh, we'll show you those in a second. Nitric oxide will be on the test because that's big time now. It's made in endothelial cells, other places too, but mainly endothelial cells. It's a potent, potent vasodilator. In fact, they've synthesized it and it's used in treating things like pulmonary hypertension and stuff like that. It's a big one now. You'll see that it plays a big, big time role in septic shock. Big time. Endothelin, no. Interleukin-1, yeah, that's one interleukin you want to know. Okay, because that's the one associated with fever. Interleukin-1 is a pyrogen. It stimulates uh, the hypothalamus to make prostaglandins, which stimulate your thermoregulatory center to produce fever. Okay, and so you can see why things like aspirin work in producing fever because they inhibit prostaglandin synthesis. But in this case, the prostaglandin is located in the hypothalamus. Okay, all right. Factor 12, forget. Guys, can you picture this? 
Can you picture this up here? And maybe have A over there, B over here for that enzyme, C over there, D for that enzyme, E for that. Okay, maybe this one over here, I'd probably put F. Mm, G over there. Okay, then I'd say platelet over here, and then you put uh, E, uh, whatever we're up to now, over there. And then they'll say endothelial cell, and they'll put another letter there. And maybe even go down here. They could have up to Z on this sucker. And all kinds of things they can do with this to screw you up. Okay? So, corticosteroids. Where would you point? Right there. Inhibits phospholipase A2 which means you don't release arachidonic acid from phospholipids, which means you make neither prostaglandins or leukotrienes. That's why it's the, that's why it's the supremo, that means supreme, uh, anti-inflammatory agent, because both prostaglandins and leukotrienes are blocked by blocking phospholipase A2. And then remember your omega-6 fatty acids that can make arachidonic acid linoleic, not linolenic, that's omega-3. That's the one you want to eat every day in walnuts and fish oils because they act like aspirin. They block platelet aggregation. That's how omega-3s protect your heart. They just act like aspirin does. They inhibit platelets from aggregating. Okay, then you know about xylutin as a drug that blocks 5-lipoxygenase. Then you have other ones that block the receptors. Okay, those really weird ones. Zarfraloost, whatever, whatever kind of crazy things that begin with Z. Okay. Then you got LTC4D4E4, the slow-reactant substance of anaphylaxis. These are the things seen in bronchial asthma. They have potent, potent bronchoconstrictors. And so you can see why xylutin works so great in asthmatics, because it's blocking all the leukotrienes, including those suckers. You already know that LTB4 is uh, adhesion molecules and chemotaxis. We go over here. Okay, what does aspirin block? Cyclooxygenase. Irreversibly or reversibly? Irreversibly, if we're talking about a platelet. Okay? And then we come down to PGH2, where everything seems to derive from. Okay? PGI2 is made in the, uh, the endothelial cell. And that's why it's called prostacyclosynthase. And this is the archenemy of thromboxane A2 made in the platelet. Okay? Thromboxane A2 is a vasoconstrictor, bronchoconstrictor, platelet aggregator. PGI2 in the endothelial cell is a vasodilator, okay, and it inhibits platelet aggregation. It's the arch enemy of thromboxane A2. Drug blocks this, please. Name me. Thromboxane synthase. This drug is also used in doing non... Uh, non uh, 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 it is used in doing stress testing for uh, coronary artery disease. Dipyramidal blocks thromboxane synthase. Okay, dipyramidal, and you can do that as a, you know, so where they don't have to do the uh, exit treadmill thing. You can do a dipyramidal stress test. And this is, blocks this and blocks thromboxane A2. This right over here is this famous PGE2. This is famous for, as a vasodilator in the kidney. This keeps a little fetus as patent, ductus patent, okay? Um, this is what makes your mucus barrier in your stomach so that you don't uh, end up with ulcers. Big one. Women? This is the little dude that causes dysmenorrhea, primary dysmenorrhea. It increases uterine contractility, and it's been made as an abortifactant to express uh, fetal uh, material. Okay, so there's a lot of good board questions here, all of which are summarized in my notes.
Lots of form in this one. Remember, maybe uh, make sure you know how the Cox two things work. Okay. All right. Cortical steroids. We already mentioned one of the things why it's a fabulous anti-inflammatory agent. It blocks uh, phospholipase A2. But what else does it do? It decreases adhesion molecule synthesis along with other steroids like epinephrine, norepinephrine. Now I want you to think. You decrease adhesion molecule synthesis, what would that do to the neutrophil count on the CBC? It increases it because you remember from immunology that 50% in a white person, 50% of neutrophils are already stuck to the endothelium of small vessels and 50% circulate and that's the one we measure. So if you decrease adhesion molecule synthesis, then those ones that were already stuck are now circulating, what would you do to your white blood cell count? Double it. And what do you know that cortical steroids do to B cells? Destroy them, they're lymphocytotoxic. You want to know by what mechanism? It starts with an A. P. There you go. Cortical steroids decrease your B cell count, that's any B and T's, both, by apoptosis. It stimulates it and it destroys. In other words, the cortical steroids are the signal for who to kill the cells. The caspasases. All right. What do they do to eosinophils? You already know what they must do because we know we use them in type 1 hypersensitivity reactions. So what must they do? Decrease them. So when we aren't corticosteroids, what's the only thing increased? Neutrophils. Mechanism. Decreased adhesion molecule synthesis. And what's decreased? Lipocytes and eosinophils. Very good. Can you think in reverse? If you had Addison's disease, what would happen? Come on, come on. Do you have cortisol? Yes or no? No. So what happens to the neutrophil count? Decreases. What happens to the eosinophil count? Increases. Good. See, that's how you can take information like that and then start applying it clinically. Do you ever wonder why a person who has a myocardial infarction always has the 18,000 CBC, most of which are neutrophils? Mechanism. Epinephrine. There you go. And what does it do to adhesion molecule synthesis? Decreases it. Boom. Neutrophil count goes up. Whoa. I think I'm getting this a little bit. Good. All right. They love electron microscopy of the inflammatory cells. Therefore, I have provided them on the screen for you for your enjoyment. Isn't that cute? He provided neutrophils and stuff on the screen. That's a neutrophil. That's the electron microscopy. Now, usually on an EM, I didn't, couldn't find one that had, it'd have another lobe or two in there, okay? To make, what do you think this thing is with all this garbage in it? It's a phagolysosome, okay? And it's got little bits and pieces of things in there. So that's a neutrophil, that's an electron micrograph. I haven't heard of, the, of them doing that one yet. But this one I have. And they did it in the lung. And they had next to it a type 2 pneumocyte. And they wanted you to identify the alveolar macrophage. That's a no-brainer. You see all these little black dots all over the place. Those are lysosomes. <laughs> okay? That's the, that's the macrophage. Okay? I'll show you what a type 2 pneumocyte looks like when we do respiratory distress syndrome. And I'll show you what the lamellar bodies look like. Lamellar bodies are the structures within which lecithin and phosphatidylcholine is located. 
Because if they ask what the macrophage was in there, what do you think another one's going to be with that same slide? Which one makes surfactant? You see? There you go. This is a monocyte, guys. Now it's kind of a grayish cytoplasm. And this is what it looks like by electron microscopy. Usually be a single nucleus. And you see all this garbage in the cytoplasm. You know that that has to be something that scavenges around. This can form a foam cell, by the way, in a natural sclerotic plaque because it can phagocytose oxidized LDL. Did you know oxidized LDL is free radical LDL? And what vitamin neutralizes oxidized LDL? Vitamin E, very good. But this one's kind of easy. I, I'm not an electron microscopist, but this is a lymphocyte. And if you see a, an electron micrograph and it's all nucleus with very little cytoplasm, uh, that's a lymphocyte. But just for fun, play odds on what that lipocyte is. Okay, choices. CD4T, CD8T, B cell. Play odds. All right, play odds T versus B. T, 60% of the peripheral blood lipocytes are T. Now what's normal ratio of helper, which is 4, to suppressor, which is 8? 2 to 1. So play odds on which one this would be. Helper T cell. Then it would be more likely a suppressor T cell, and then the least likely would be B cell, which would be only account for about 20% of your cells. So any cell that has a, just all nucleus is a lymphocyte. Okay, now this should be very easy. What's all this crap over here, these little things that look like a thumbprint? That's rough endoplasmic reticulum. What does rough endoplasmic reticulum make, please? That's the ribosomes on it, which make proteins. So this cell likes to make proteins, like immunoglobulins. So what do you think it is? Plasma cell. There you go. So the one that looks like it has, looks like a fingerprint in there with all these ribosomes in it, it's a plasma cell. This is multiple myeloma. Notice that the nucleus is eccentrically located. Notice also the cytoplasm is always sky blue. Makes plasma cells real easy to recognize. But they're the ones that have the most ribosomes because they're always making protein. What did a plasma cell derive from, please? A B cell. There you go. And where would they be located in the, in the, in the follicle, please? In the, oh, I already gave it away. In the B cell, please. Germinal follicle. Very good. Okay. Number one and number two. We're not talking about going to the bathroom. Okay, number one has granules, which are the same color as RBCs. Number one is a eosinophil. Number two has got granules that are more purplish and darker, basophil. So if you're not colorblind, it's easy to tell an eosinophil from a basophil. Eosinophils have a red color that's similar to the color of red blood cells, whereas basophils have more darker colors. Now, this is an eosinophil. You know what's in those granules, guys? Crystals. It's the only inflammatory cell that has crystals in its granules. And you even know what the name of them are in the sputum of, a, of an asthmatic. You even know what the name of it is. What is it? Charcoalidin crystals. And what they are are degenerated eosinophils in the sputum of an, of, a, of an asthmatic. And they form these little crystals that look like spearheads. And they come from these crystals here. Ooh. What's the mechanism for killing invasive helminths? Let's see how good your microbiologist was. Type 2 hypersensitivity. And who's involved in it? Oh, yeah. From who? Major basic protein. I mean, major basic protein could be the major involved in this, in this thing. Remember that 
Remember the schister, the schister um, eggs that you saw in that, in that biopsy specimen, remember? What were they coated by? IgE antibodies. What do you think, what kind of receptors do we as inapils have? IgE. And so they hook into those IgE antibodies and they release their chemicals. And the big one's major basic protein. And that destroys the helminth. But that's type 2 hypersensitivity because it's a cell hooking into an antibody on a target cell. See, where you get confused with type 1 hypersensitivity in eosinophils, eosinophils isn't the, isn't the effector cell for type 1 hypersensitivity, guys. Who's the effector cell? The mast cell. And what do they release from their purple granules? Histamine, eosinophil chemotactic factor. So they were invited to the area of, of the type 1 hypersensitivity. What is their purpose in a type 1 hypersensitivity action? What is their purpose? Their purpose is that they also have histaminase in them and they have aryl sulfatase, which neutralizes leukotrienes. So the real purpose for eosinophils in a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction actually is to knock off some of the chemical mediators producing the, uh, the type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. But when it kills, an eosinophil kills an invasive helminth, it does so by type 2 hypersensitivity. That's not a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Okay. Cluster designations. Just for fun, just to get you involved, because some of you look like you're in myasthenic crisis at this time. Okay, I want you to pick out the one for helper T cell. Four. Uh, cytotoxic T cell. Eight. Uh, the marker, the antigen uh, recognition site for all uh, T cells. Three, good. Uh, the antigenic marker for histiocytes, which would include Langerhorn cells. One is correct, very good. The uh, marker for the most common leukemia in children. That was asked recently, and that really irritated me because that's memorization. The answer is 10, and that's the Kala antigen. Remember, you talk about the common ALL antigen, positive B cell leukemias. Well, that actually CD10, believe it or not, and that was on some kid's exam. So I added it to my notes. So when I taught the New York thing a couple of months ago, was it there? Yes, because I knew about it then, but the one before that? No. So are they going to get it wrong? Likely. Okay, 1530 actually is uh, Reed Sternberg. CD21's been asked. I think it's dumb. It's only on B cells, and there's a virus that hooks into this receptor. Name me. Epstein-Barr virus. It hooks into that receptor, CD21, on B cells. Actually, the atypical lymphocytes are not the B cells. They're T cells reacting against the infected B cells. Ooh. Burkitt's lymphoma is a B cell lymphoma, guys. Not a T cell lymphoma. CD45 is on all leukocytes, so it's a common antigen on everything. These are the most important, in my opinion, cluster designations that must, you must know. Isn't it nice that you don't have to go beyond this? I would think so. I would like that. Fever must be important because I designated one slide to it. Who's responsible for fever most of the time in a leukin-1? And it worked, remember, via plastic. In fact, it's PGE2 again. That's what the hypothalamus is making. 
And then that stimulates the thermoregulatory center. Is fever good? Say yes. Yes, it is. Did you notice that you told me that it did what to the oxygen dissociation curve? Right shifted it. Why do we want lots of oxygen in our tissue when we have inflammation? Oxygen-dependent myeloperoxidase system. So when we give antipyretics to patients that have infections, is that bright? No. Because we're thwarting a mechanism for getting oxygen to the neutrophils and monocytes to do what they do best. Whoa. You're really getting into this, aren't you? Yeah. Also, hot temperatures in the body are not very good for reproduction of bacteria and viruses. And we're not just talking about bacteria, we're talking about viruses don't like high temperatures. That actually is a, is a mechanism for killing them. Not a good idea to give antipyretics. Now, if you've got a kid with a febrile convulsion, that's another story. But, I mean, 103 temperature, 104, forget it. Forget it. It's, it's, it's killing bugs, bacteria, helping neutrophils do their thing, monocyte do their thing, getting lots of oxygen to tissue. 105, that's what I'm thinking about. Maybe lowering a little bit. Fever is good. Okay, types of inflammation. This is the most common. I, I, the reason I put this one here versus some other type of suppurative inflammation is because it's been asked on boards. This is a postpartum woman. She's got pus coming out of her lactiferous duct organism, Staph aureus. And the, uh, so this is an example of suppurative inflammation. Okay, here's, here's a bone in a child that had sepsis. Okay, and we see in the metathesis of bone a yellowish area which turned out to be all an abscess. So what is this? Uh, osteomyelitis. Organism. Staph aureus. Let's say the kid had sickle cell disease. Organism. Salmonella. Very good. That's very good. SS is not good because it's actually salmonella typhimurium. Okay. Why is it the metaphysis of bone? Because that's, that's where all the blood supply to the bone goes. So what does that tell you about the mechanism of osteomyelitis? Hematogenous. So it comes from another source. Then it gets to bone. Ooh, this is cool. Yes, it is. I agree with you. Okay. Hot. Spread out over the face. Cellulitis. Organism, if you play odds. Strep. Pneumoniae or group A strep, strep pyogenes? Pyogenes. There you go. So this is erysipelas, an example of cellulitis. Now this one they love right here. Now here's the way I would ask this. Okay, in fact, Friday, my kiddos had their first path exam. This was the last picture on it. Okay? And it said the type of uh, uh, necrosis noted in this patient would be analogous to the type of necrosis in which the following. And I had Clostridium difficile, Clostridium perfringens, and some other stupid things. What was the answer? Clostridium difficile, because this is diphtheria, and this is a pseudomembrane. Carinobacterium diphtheriae, guys, a gram-positive rod, and it makes an exotoxin, which screws up riboxylation of proteins, elongation factor 2, that's what the toxin does. And the toxin damages the mucosa and submucosa, producing a pseudomembrane. The bacteria doesn't invade. It produces a toxin that damages the membrane. So does Clostridium difficile. And it also produces a pseudomembrane and a toxin. 
which is what we measure in stool to make the diagnosis. So the answer was Clostridium difficile. Okay. Did they get it right? 100%. 100%. That's the pseudomembrane of diphtheria. Ooh. Okay. All right? What's this type of, uh, of uh, inflammation called? That so-called bread and butter pericarditis? What's this called? Fibrinous. Fibrinous type of inflammation. Usually due to increased vessel permeability. We see this in lupus. This would be the most common heart lesion in lupus. So you'd have a friction rub. We see this in the first week of a myocardial infarction. Then six weeks later called Dressler syndrome. We see it there too. We've seen with Coxsackie infections, which is always asked on boards. Okay, this is a third degree burn and this is a blister and I just happened to show that. What's the most common organism producing infection in third degree burns? Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Very good. What's the color of its pus? Green. Due to? Pyocyanin. Oh, this is good. This is even before lunch and you guys are still awake. This is so incredible. At least some of you are awake. Not all. Okay, believe it or not, they had something similar to these schematics on someone's exam, which I couldn't believe. And they wanted you to add them labeled A, B, C, and D, apparently. Of course, they didn't have granulation tissue pointing to them and scar and all that kind of stuff. And they asked, what was it? They asked something about which stage, and it was pretty simple, actually. They said, which, which of the following was the stage within which there's a seal in the, in a, in the, in the wound, in a primary intention wound? The answer was B, okay? Well, I know what it was. I think they had, it wasn't this type of thing. They had different things showing. They had uh, uh, something going over the top of a clot, underneath the clot like you see here, and I have no idea what the other ones were. Uh, what this is showing is that the basal cell layer on both sides of the, of the cut, okay, proliferate and they go underneath the clot and, make, and, and seal it. They don't go over the clot, they go underneath it. They actually had a whole diagram and a whole series of things to pick that out. That was kind of weird, I thought. So when do we seal this, uh, this uh, primary, let's say this is, a, this is a, someone that had an appendectomy. Uh, by 48 hours, this, the wound is sealed off because the basal cells have, have formed the seal. The key for healing of a wound is the presence of granulation tissue. And there is a protein, guys, which is a very important pro uh, proteoglycan, uh, and that's fibronectin. That's involved in uh, the healing of a wound. Fibronectin is uh, an adhesion agent. It's a chemotactic agent that invites all the people around there, like fibroblasts, to help uh, in the healing process. Granulation tissue starts on day three, and it's really at its prime on day five. You ever have a scab on a wound and you picked it off, and it bled like mad, and you pressed on it, and it bled like mad? That's the granulation tissue. Some people call it proud flesh. Women that are pregnant can get them on the gums called pyogenic granulomas. It's basically granulation tissue. No granulation tissue, no healing uh, a wound. Very important. Fibronectin, very important. Name the type of collagen, please. Responsible, initially, type 3. So we already know two collagens already. Four, and where was that located? Basal membrane 3, and where is that located? In the initial stages of wound repair. Okay, what's type 1? That's the good stuff. That's nice and strong. Highest tensile strength. It's in um, bone, uh, skin. Uh, and tendons and ligaments. It's very strong tensile strength. Okay, now what happens after about uh, over the ensuing weeks and months uh, to the type 3 collagen, please? It gets broken down by collagenases, type 3, 
and there's a metalloenzyme that's the, the what is the what trace element is actually an enzyme associated with the collagenase that helps convert type 3 into type 1 collagen please zinc that's why zinc deficiency commonly produces problems with wound healing because it's a screw that screws up the collagenase you've got to replace the 3 with type 1 and what's the maximum tensile strength that you can get in a wound by 3 months 80% What's the most common cause of, of poor wound healing? Infection. What's this patient have? Oh, no, that's not it. Wait a minute. Where is it? Where is it? What's this patient have? Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Defect, please. Collagen. It could be in synthesis, breaking down, or whatever. Ehlers-Danlos. Okay, would you have poor wound healing there? Sure. Now, I don't have a picture now, but you will see one another time of another disease where the defects in fibrillin which is an elastic tissue, what's that one? Morphans, both have screwed up wound healing. Lastly, before lunch, in a uh, patient with scurvy, what's the defect? Defect is in hydroxylation of two amino acids, name them, proline and lysine, okay. Do you happen to know um, why that's important to hydroxylate proline and lysine with ascorbic acid? What makes, the, remember it's, it's a triple helix, remember? Okay? Now, what makes those triple helixes stick together and form the tensile strain? Cross bridges. Cross bridge. When you cross bridge things that you want to increase the strength in, that gives the strength to them. Cross bridging. Lysyl oxidase is the enzyme. Copper is the cofactor for that. Well, guess what the cross bridges hook into, what they anchor into? They anchor into those places where you hydroxylated proline and lysine. And so you have weak, abnormal collagen and scurvy because there's no cross bridges. The cross bridges can't, can't attach to anything, and so it's weak collagen. You therefore can't heal wounds. You end up with hemorrhages. You end up with hemarthroses, all those terrible things associated with uh, vitamin C deficiency. So you've got to know more than hydroxylating proline and lysine. You've got to know what that means. That means that the collagen that you make has weak tensile strength. Why? Can't cross bridge. Okay, we'll finish our uh, inflammation uh, at 1 o'clock.